Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. I'm Lauren from Swansea in the United Kingdom and with me, as always, is... It's Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. USA. USA. You're sounding sounding too enthusiastic for somebody with a headache, Brian. Ah, well, what are you going to do? I took aspirin. Um... Have you been working today? Because I haven't, because today is a bank holiday, and I get bank holidays off now. Um, I have, because I'm in a country where, you know, we only have regular holidays, not these bank holidays. Well, we've got to thank the Victorians for those good old Victorians. Although it is a holiday here, you know. Is it? It is. It's Sarah's birthday. Ah, happy birthday, Sarah. Yeah, happy birthday, Sarah. So how are you, Lauren? How is your bank holiday? <clears throat> um, it's good. Um, it's it's quite a novelty because um, I, I've worked in jobs previous to this one where I've not been able to enjoy a bank holiday or any holiday because I've worked in retail and uh, customer-facing positions. So, yeah, so it feels good. You know, I work for a company that does have most holidays off. So, uh, yeah, I can uh, welcome to the club. Yeah, I know. It's, it's good, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's pretty fun. Um, what is the holiday today there? It's May Day. It's May Day! That sounds yeah. like a bad, you know, advertisement in America. It's May Day, May Day, May Day! And then next month, um, the Queen uh, the Queen has her Jubilee. So we get two days off in a row. So I get a Thursday and a Friday off. Friday, so Queen Jubilee. Tuesday, Friday, Monday's off. <laughs> that made no sense, Brian. No, it didn't. But neither does the UK. So <laughs> it does. It makes more sense than the USA. Remember when I promised you last week I would have jokes for you? Yes. Oh, I got some good ones because, in honor of tonight's episode, tonight. We are going to be discussing Dracula. We are. And this is a big month now. Now we're moving into May. This is a big month for Dracula. So, I got a Dracula joke for you. Okay. Why was Dracula kicked out of art school? Because he sucked. Because he could only draw blood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's better than my answer. (laughs) Okay. Do you want another horror-themed joke? Go on, then. Okay. Why don't zombies eat popcorn with their fingers? I don't know. Because they like their fingers separate. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. All right, all right, all right. This is a history show, Lauren. So how about some nice, funny historical humor? Okay. What do you call a vegetarian Viking? I don't know. A Norwegian. I, I don't think the Vikings would have liked to have been vegetarian. A Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> sometimes it's best just to amuse yourself, I guess. It is. And I'm sure the, the studio audience seem to love that as well. Oh, that was funny. 
So how so how what have you been getting up to for Sarah's birthday then? Did she have a day off work today? No, no, she, she worked. It's not a bank holiday for her. No, but normally people take their birthday days off. No, nah, not when you're above a certain age. I'm not saying she's old, but you know. If she took a day off, she'd just have to like, you know, stay here with me. What fun is that on your birthday? Did you buy her presents? Well, of course, but we can't talk about that on the air. Oh, she hasn't had them yet. No. All right. Okay. They're nerd the, themed, so it'll be good. But but that they're, they're presents. There's more than one present. Uh, yeah. Good. How did Luke know what Darth Vader got him for Christmas? He felt his presence. He did. <laughs> I've told that one before, haven't I? I've heard it before. Are you saying my jokes are old, Lauren? Yes, I am. Just are like you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Hurtful. Yes. You haven't asked me how the East End Conference was. I didn't think you'd want to talk about that on this episode. I thought you'd want to talk about that next episode when maybe the interview, when, when maybe your lecture would drop, but... I don't know when that lecture will drop because they're all recorded and then they're all sent over to Rippercast and I don't know how, do they drop them weekly? Do they drop them monthly? So you might hear it like three months from, no, five, four months from now. I don't know how they do it. Unless they will magically appear at once. I have no idea. Hey, hey, Lauren. Yes. How was the East End Conference? It was very good. And uh, did you get drunk? No, I did not. Did get you get drunk. rowdy? No, I did not get pick rowdy. Pick any fights? No, I did not pick any fights. Did you get any fight with, like, the West Enders? No. I did meet up with a friend I hadn't seen in a few years, though. You didn't fight her, though, did you? No, we didn't fight. No, we had dim sum, and um, we we had some very lovely prosecco. Hey, Lauren. Yes. When when you get into like fights at these conferences, do you hear like fight music in your head? Like, um, <laughs> well, there were no fights at these at the at this conference. I thought you said there were. What? Maybe I just dreamed it. I think you did dream it. I dream of fights at the East End Conference. I mean, there there were some, um, the the uh, one of the uh, attendees. What he, he likes to take photographs, and it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like um, when you used to go on a school trip with a disposable camera type of thing. So there's a lot of candid shots, and I know a lot of people got upset about the candid shots. I've seen some of those candid shots. They're not flattering. But they're candids. And, and if you yeah, but ask he picks him, the worst ones, doesn't he? He, he? he Literally, he puts up all his photographs. Like, I think he does it to be funny and good on him because some of them are hilarious, but I can see why people get mad. Well, he didn't do it to me. He didn't pick any flattering ones of me. And that's because I heard you kept flashing the camera. No, he did not. <laughs> Don't put that out there. Weirdo. Oh, I'm sorry, Lauren. I'm bad. Yeah, you are. No, it was really fun. Um, it was nice to meet some new people as well, people that I'd, I'd heard spoken about 
um or positively and you know heard about but not had a chance to meet and it was nice to meet them and it's really nice to be back having those conferences isn't it fun when you go to those conferences and like you're on like you take the train to london correct no i took the coach to london okay and like when i went to that conference in baltimore i remember getting on the plane and, uh, you know, person sitting next to me, I don't know who they are, we're about to take off. And, you know, people just start little small talk conversation with the person they're next to. And they're like, oh, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Uh, what are you going to Baltimore for? I'm going for work. What about you? Oh, I'm going for a, a Jack the Ripper conference. Oh, nice. And not a, another word was spoken the rest of the trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't speak to each other on um, public transport. What? Nobody speaks to each other on public transport, unless you're me, and then I try and help somebody with their luggage if, if it's the train. Because I've got to catch the train to work, and I will help people with their luggage if they're struggling. And then they speak to me. But Everyone talks to each other on public transport in America, except buses. No one wants to talk to you on the bus, but, you know, there's reasons for that. But... On a plane or a train, you know, people always want to talk to each other, which is kind of annoying at times. I'd rather they didn't sometimes. But uh, if the proper etiquette in the UK is to not, we need to adopt that in America. Um, well, no, we just don't talk to each other. No, unless we... unless somebody does re- something really funny, like there was this one time this person thought. Um, thought they were clever in jumping on the tube as the doors were closing and their bag got stuck in the doors. That was funny. <laughs> Did they lose their bag? No. Oh, then that's not as funny. <laughs> it was funny because his bag was sitting, sticking out the tube train until the next stop. You know what would have been hilarious? If the bag popped open when it did, when it, and everything <laughs> exploded out of it and it was filled with all kinds of embarrassing personal items. I'd have been gone. I don't think I could have coped that. That would have been awesome. <laughs> so I got a question for you, Lauren. Oh yes, okay. You might not be able to answer this one, but if it's not proper etiquette to talk to each other on public transport in the UK, what about at urinals? Um, I don't know. I, I don't use urinals because there is nothing worse <laughs> than being in a public bathroom standing at the urinal and then the guy next to you wants to start a conversation it's really uncomfortable one time i turned right around faced the guy and kept and just started talking back to him peeing on his leg the whole time oh why would you do that because he shouldn't have talked to someone at the urinal that's why that's disgusting yeah it's back in the drinking days it is such a boy thing to do as all though. Yeah, well, yeah, because girls don't stand at urinals to pee. So, of course, it's a boy thing to do. <laughs> You're supposed to pee the smart one, Lauren. Why would you point out the obvious? <laughs> it's not that. It's just like peeing on somebody because they annoyed you is such a boy thing to do. Yeah, I guess. It, it was a lesson to that guy. I bet you he's never talked to someone at the urinal again. And he's just listened to this show and found out it was you. I performed a public service. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome, America. (laughs) That's right. 
I don't encourage other people to do this. I was young and stupid and drunk at the time, but it happened. Eh. And now your mother knows about it. Oh, I probably told her when it happened. Guess what I did? And she probably said, good, son, good. (laughs) Look, it doesn't matter what I say today, because my mother is going to be thrilled anyway, (laughs) because my mother's boyfriend's on today. Uh, Yeah, I... I, (laughs) Have you told Neil that he's your mother's boyfriend? We we told him together, remember? And then he gave her a lovely uh, holiday message. Did she record that holiday message? I still don't call him dad. I refuse. (laughs) That would be weird. It would. It would. Um, Especially since we're like the same age. But (laughs) but that's right. My mother's boyfriend, Neil's story is going to be on. And along with Neil, the great Bruce Hollenbeck is back with us. And we are going to talk about all things Dracula and his representation in film. Lauren, I, you know me, I'm a horror film freak to begin with. Dracula films are just, they, they, well, they run the gambit from fantastic to fucking horrible. But it's going to be so great to talk to these two about it. Because Neil is, you know, a Stoker scholar. And Bruce, of <laughs> course, is a horror film historian and a folklore historian. And they've never met. And I think they are going to get along like um, chocolate and peanut butter. They're going to be like, they're going to be my Reese Cup couple. What are you saying? Your mother's going to have a competition for Neil's hand. Well, maybe. I think I'm going to create a Reese Cup couple of Neil and Bruce. I think they're, you, you tell me you don't think they're going to get along. You think they'll get along? I think it's going to be match made in transatlantic history heaven. Mm-hmm. So, instead of us, like, um, holding off too much longer, why don't you give me a good day in history? Come on, give me a, clear your throat, give me a good one. (coughs) Don't cough, I said, clear your throat, COVID girl, stop (laughs) coughing on me. We're not even in the same room. We're not even on the same continent, and I'm worried about getting COVID from you coughing on me, damn it. (laughs) Put a mask on, Lauren. Don't actually, Robert. And I spoke to Robert Anderson the day before I gave my talk, and he was geeking out about my talk. And um, we need to talk to him about coming on and doing um, a syphilis. Wait a second, was uh, Robert there? No, no, I spoke to him on Facebook. Oh, because you know, I love Robert, and yeah, Robert was on for our Grateful Dead episode, folks. Go check that out. That was a great episode about the Grateful Dead. But Robert is the king of syphilis. And yeah, a dear friend, um, great guy. Yeah, um, but my talk is on syphilis. Yeah, so of course he was freaking out. Yeah, you got. So yes. So, so come on, toy, typhoid Mary, give me a give me <laughs> a day in history. Today in history. <laughs> okay, what you got for me, Lauren? Wow, um, May in the uk is always a um fun month when it comes to the tudors because from around about now the first and second well from the first of may really to the 19th of may we sort of um 
see the countdown of the execution, the arrest and execution of Anne Boleyn. So today, um, while the charges were taken to her husband, King Henry VIII, on the first today, while she was watching on the set, today, right this minute, today, no, today in 1536, the second of May, she was arrested while watching real tennis and taken to the tower. But now this is where it gets a bit messy. Because when you go to the tower, it's depicted as if she came in through Traitor's Gates. Now, that is that is where the contention lies, because what we've got to remember is she was an anointed queen. And when she was arrested, she was under suspicion she had been arrested of the charges. She had not been um she had not had a sentence pronounced she had not been found found guilty she was very much under suspicion and though that the suspicion was enough to have her arrested she wasn't she wasn't condemned or anything so she would not have gone through traitor's gates she went through the front door and she was very much treated in the manner that she was accustomed to because what we forget and what a lot of people forget is that she was an anointed queen she had a coronation and um you know it would have been bad press to allow someone that had not been condemned um, to death to go through traitor's gates. It did happen, but it mostly did it to scare people. I mean, when you get to Catherine Howard in 1542, she did go through traitor's gates, but that's because at the time she was taken to the tower, she was taken to the tower to have her sentence of beheading enacted out. She had been uh, arrested through Act of Attainder, which is an act of Parliament, which basically says you have been accused of this crime, you have been found guilty of this crime without a trial because the king says you're guilty, and therefore we will enact this sentence of beheading out on you. With and it was very different. She did have a trial, and that comes now. The anniversary of that now comes up in the um, the next few days. Um, and so, yes. So the uh, the reason that I bring up that people that weren't um, that that weren't found guilty went through traitors' gates because later in her sister's reign, Elizabeth I goes is sent to the tower, and she is sent to sent to the tower and comes through traitors' gates, and that is done because her sister is trying to scare her. So it was, you could pay fast and loose with the rules, but at this time in 1560, in 1536, um, it would have been very much a big no-no to send an anointed queen to the tower who had not been yet had her trial through Traitor's Gate. So she would have gone through the front door. I got a question. Yes. Wouldn't it have been more appropriate to have arrested Anne Boleyn on May 3rd? No. <laughs> You know why, Lauren? <clears throat> why? She had three boobs. Oh, uh, shut up about that. <laughs> I've heard it. Uh, yeah, it's wrong, though. Um, no, um, they were moving as quickly as possible. If you ever look at the documentation, I mean, um, it's really rare to find um, a document that a court, um, an indictment or court document from roughly around that era and earlier that is written on two sides of the membrane of the parchment membrane and her indictment is written on two sides and the poor clerk was writing was writing very fast and you can see he sort of gets very frayed and it was everything was produced for speed so the british justice system was not built in a way and it still isn't built in a way where you could arrest somebody and have their trial within 19 days, within two weeks, and then have them executed or imprisoned. That It just doesn't work like that. It's never worked like that. So 
it, essentially he was uh, Cromwell and Henry were working at breakneck speed to get this through. Hey, what Henry wants, Henry gets. Um, <clears throat> it's debatable how much he knew of what was going on before it happened. Um, unfortunately, though, people don't like to remember, um, you know, Anne had had by this point in 1536, she had her final miscarriage. So she was still a grieving woman, you know, they, they did grieve over the children that they lost and she'd had a few miscarriages before. And I think there were at least two where she'd had to go through labor, some sort of labor. So, you know, that is a lot of stress to put on somebody, whether it was, you know, nearly 500 years ago or whether it was today. Not to mention so, the beheading she has coming. Um, so what had happened is Mark Smeaton was flirting with her and she essentially said, oh, no, it wasn't Mark Smeaton. It was somebody else came up to her and she said, you should get married. And he was like, no, I think I'll like wait around and, you know, weigh my options. And she sort of took it to mean that he was waiting for her. And she goes, oh, you look for dead man's shoes. Now, when we broke, when England broke with Rome, Henry changed the treason laws and it became illegal to speak of the death of the king. So you couldn't, so it caused a problem at the end of his life because everybody was so scared of going to him saying, you're dying, you know, you need to make your peace. You need to get the priest here and make your peace with God before you die that it was really too late by the time that Cranmer got there. He was too far gone to do anything. So it did cause problems. Well, yeah. So, so, so so technically, unfortunately, because of a really weird law that um, may or may not be legal, read my book, you know, buy my book when it comes out and find out more. um, She was essentially guilty of treason and what's interesting to note is that she was actually sentenced to be burnt before being beheaded and then her sentence was commuted to beheading it's quicker easier more effective not, not necessarily if it had been an axe it could have gone badly i've seen those chopomatic commercials it's quick it's easy <clears throat> and it can slice a tomato just as fast as it could slice anne boleyn's head well, no, she was executed with a sword, oh. um, but an axe could go wrong. Was I it mean, a Ginsu sword? Um, no, it was a French sword. He was a swordsman from Calais. If you ever go, if you ever Google Margaret Pole and her execution in 1541, you can see what can go wrong. Mary Queen, it went wrong with Mary Queen of Scots as well. And it's well, not nice. You know, that's depressing. But my day in history also deals with the dead. The Grateful Dead. Not the Grateful Dead, but the dead itself. I am going to be tying it into today's episode in a way. Okay. Because today in history, May 2nd, 1957, the very first color Hammer horror film, The Curse of Frankenstein, was released today, starring the great Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And Lauren, I'll bet you dollars to donuts that those names come up a lot in tonight's episode. Um, well, yes, I, I don't see how they can't. No, but uh, 
You see that? I'm not talking about, like, you know, hacking queens' heads off and uh, burning them at the stake without even mentioning that, you know, the three boobs. Well, that's not true, Brian. So we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> but, yeah. Curse of Frankenstein. I still think mine's better. Well, historically, <laughs> maybe, but for tonight's episode, aha, I may have. I a just winner. think it's mine. I just think it's mine. Mine is better because uh, of the legal history and how such a fascinating case it is. Well, yeah, and you know what's going to be really cool? I heard a little birdie told me there's going to be a book that's going to explain all this. Yes. Yeah, tell the people. <laughs> my my book. Exactly, yeah, you signed the deal. I have. I signed the deal, and in um, sometime in twenty twenty five, there will be a book with my name upon it. Um, that will discuss the trial of Anne Boleyn, and um, well, we'll call it a trial because it's much too complicated to say otherwise tonight. And the trial of well, the means brought the means that were brought upon Catherine Howard to bring her to justice and discussing if they were legal. Well, we're going to have to bring you to justice now because I am going to inflict the witness stand of Neil Story back upon you, Lauren. Oh, God. I'm going to go fire up that magic interview box. It's the magic interview box. <laughs> and, 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 Lauren, are you ready? Yes. Are you ready? I am. All right, why don't you flip the switch just like you're generating the Frankenstein monster. Oh, right, Lauren, this is going to be good because we, 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 it's just two against two, two Americans versus two UK folk. <laughs> and uh, I think we, we might win. I think uh, me and the amazing, prolific Bruce Hollenbeck horror film aficionado expert wrote the book on hammer and on your team is neil story i mean you know come on the man the myth the mustache neil story bruce neil welcome back hey good to be on the show as always lovely to see all familiar faces and and, and faces new with bruce but lovely to meet you bruce well it's great to meet you too now this is so, going to be interesting because this is a big banner year for Bram Stoker, who, as we all know, Neil is a biographer for. And one of them, one of the biographers, yeah. Yep. And Lauren, I don't know if you know this, but Bram Stoker wrote this little novel called Dracula. He wrote many novels, I mean, you know. Yeah, but there was this one in particular called Dracula or something mm -hmm. like that. I, I don't know. But... Now, Bruce, you're going to have to back me up on this one. Yeah. I think the character of Dracula is the third most represented character of fiction in film history. Second or third, I'd say, after Sherlock Holmes, and I'm not sure what the other one is. Zorro is up there. Zorro's Zorro is number one. Is he? Really? Believe it or not, yeah, it's, it's in, in, in certain parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, there's been film after film... Uh, with Zorro as as the lead character, and there have been so many of them that he he's even appeared more than Sherlock Holmes. Wow, and that surprises me. Yeah, yeah. what do you do with Zorro? Me. 
Sorry? I mean, what do you do with Zorro after Antonio Banderas played him? It's all downhill. Well, yeah, you know, Zorro is kind of a uh, a one-shot character. He's sort of like Robin Hood, though. I, I suppose every generation finds something new in him. Although I did like Zorro the Gay Blade. I thought that was a very <laughs> funny movie. Yeah, that was pretty good. Neil and Lauren are looking at me like, what are you talking about? That is an American film that didn't make it over there. It is safe. I always always, uh, look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about, Brian. (laughs) Do I look at you? Well, I thought it'd be great to bring these two on. These two, they're going to clash heads like rams. Because we're going to talk about Stoker's most famous creation in his effect on film. Mm. I, I, I bet you we, we won't clash like rams, actually. I, I dare say there will be synergy more than, 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 than clash. That's an excellent way of putting it, yes. I, I believe so. I mean, I, I could create so. drama if you want. I mean, I could, you know. Don't, Brian. Don't have drama. Your ceiling, Brian. And you say, and do your wrestling introduction things. Absolutely. That would be just, that's clickbait right there. The trouble is that we we wouldn't grapple. We would just have a very nice meal together uh, and and drink lots of red wine and talk about Bram and Hammer. (laughs) You see, he likes red wine, so already we're connecting. Yeah, you guys, I'm telling you, this is going to be the Neil and Bruce show, Lauren. You realize we're just going to sit back. (laughs) I, I feel the bromance already. And there we are. And I, and I hope you don't like the light ones. 13, 14%. We've got to go for those. You know, nice, rich, delicious. Oh, yes. I, that, that's the kind I like the best, yeah. Bull-bodied. Oh, absolutely marvelous. Well, there we, we I will like, go. I like wine the same way I like my women. You know, full-bodied, yes. I say so. <laughs> You'll you'll be scolded for such a comment on Uh-oh. international radio as I have found my to my expense. <laughs> We've all been criticized. What have I things. done? You haven't, mate. Uh, <laughs> no, you, do you know what? You can sometimes say the most innocent things to yes. very dear friends, but because people don't realise you're really good friends and you have a bit of banter. Oh, so we move mindfully on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I my think sense of humor sometimes die. gets in the way, but, you know. Always. Mine always gets in the way. <laughs> but I think we should start at yeah, the beginning. Yeah, Brian, like, what, what, I'm so traumatized over what you did with Allison Leah. I will not forgive you for that. Allison loved it, ladies and gentlemen. I'd just like to point that out. When I asked Allison Weir, the great, best, fifth best-selling author in the history of the UK, and I asked her about Anne Boleyn's boobs, she loved it. Happened. What was the question about Anne Boleyn's boobs? Is it true that she had three? Ah, okay. I didn't know that. Apparently she didn't. Oh, well then that's why I didn't know that then. And I'd like to point out that Alison <laughs> Weir's response was, if it were true, her portraits would have sold better. No doubt. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> no doubt. But let's start at the beginning of of dracula and and i guess we gotta i'm gonna go to neil first about stoker's origins for dracula yes so give give us the lowdown what was you know stoker's 
inspiration to create this character that transcended all of media? Well, it, it was quite a journey for Bram. He really wanted to create a play that he, he was a great admirer of an actor by the name of Henry Irving that he'd met as a young theatre critic in, in Dublin, in Ireland, where, where, where Bram had grown up and gone to university. He was a trinity. And uh, he worked in the civil service, didn't earn an awful lot of money. And so he earned, he wanted, he wanted to sort of earn his passage, really, by becoming a theatre critic. He'd also been really fed up with how uh, some of the papers really hadn't covered the theatres very well. So he, he actually said, I will come and be a theatre critic, even if it's unpaid. So they said, yeah, all right, you can do it. It's unpaid, but you get free tickets. Anyway, got to see Irving as a young up-and-coming actor, and he saw there was something different in him. And Irving appreciated him too, at, I think, at that time. Although Irving would become, become phenomenally vain and a sort of almost a blood sucker, a soul sucker of all the energies of many of the people around him. <laughs> but Bram wanted to create a play worthy of the chief or the master himself, Henry Irving. And so that's really the genesis of Dracula as we would know it as a as a as a as an entity as a creation but how did he form him well he, dracula i mean we could do a whole show about the different characters and personas he drew bram drew on characteristics of irving atmospheres of irving but also people he met little features or appearances people like Henry Morton Stanley, the explorer that appeared more like a dead man than alive. The tooth, when Alfred Lord Tennyson had a particular sort of thought, often a bit of a, oh, I don't get on with that sort of fellow thought, the corner of his mouth would curl up. And Richard Burton, the explorer, displayed a similar thing. And they really did seem to have quite extended canine teeth. And they were both quite grim and severe looking people, particularly Burton. My God, he, he was a hard looking, you think of the hardest, toughest marine you could think of, but a very slender one. That's Burton. And Burton had quite this big old droopy moustache, and so did Henry Morton Stanley. And originally, you see, Dracula did have, when he's first met by Jonathan Harkin in, in, in the castle, he has this white moustache. But of course, as he gets younger, his features change. And he's feasting on lots of blood. So there are many different, and there's also the performances at the Lyceum Theatre, because when Irving took on the theatre, he brought over Bram Stoker to be the acting manager. So you've got this man that adored him, you know, oh, it's a great, it's the theatrical world, it's the atmosphere of the, the, the fantasiacle of the 1880s, really, the glory days of theatre theatrical performance performances like the scottish play that begins with an m that's all thespians don't really mention but i'm sure good people can work it out um there's and there's all sorts there's this different faust performances as well incredible sights on stage even van der decken which was a version 
of the Flying Dutchman. There was a particular look in Irving's eye that lingered with Bram Stoker when he eventually put pen to paper and described the character that would become known as Dracula. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, now, what I always found fascinating was so many people associate vampires with Stoker because Dracula was such a big deal, or became such a big deal. Mm. But Bruce, who is also, you know, pretty knowledgeable when it comes to folklore. You know, the story of the vampire was nothing new, and Brom did not invent that. I mean, how long had that been around? A long time. A <laughs> uh, few hundred years, anyway. But what's interesting is that, uh, you know, Stoker did not even invent the fictional vampire in the sense of uh, creating the sort of suave image of the vampire we know now. That was actually John Polidori, uh, who wrote The Vampire in 1819, you know, on that fateful trip to Switzerland with uh, Mary Shelley and Byron and all those fellows and, and women who just went crazy over there and had too much laudanum. Well, see the movie Gothic, you know. Um, <laughs> Any Ken Russell but, uh, film, I'll watch. Yeah, right. Um, Me too. Um, I always and, thought that the vampire came from... Byron started writing it, abandoned it because it wasn't interesting him anymore. And then Polidori picked it up and wrote it. Well, my understanding is that he came up with the idea or he dreamed about it or something <laughs> or had a hallucination. God knows. Um, but, uh, but Polidori actually did the writing. When, when the story was first published, it was credited to Byron because he was the big deal. He was the name. But uh, eventually, the word got out it was Polidori. And actually, after that, in 1871, of course, you had Sheridan Le Fanu, who wrote Carmilla, uh, the female version, you might say. And uh, that one is, has been adapted a few times, too, for films. So, yeah. But, you know, Stoker was building on a, uh, a sort of a vampire subculture, you might say, that had been around for a long time. And he just happened to, he perfected it, is what he did, actually. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, although I, I really like Lauren's point uh, about the Byron origins there as well. I think that's an important point to make. But we also had characters like there was a, a huge um, multi-part dramatic series called Varney the Vampire. Right. I love Varney well. the Vampire. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised see, nobody has ever adapted that for a movie because that would be something that could be a whole series. <laughs> just but you are absolutely right there when you when you mention Sheridan Lefano, that's one of the greatest influences for Bram Stoker. Right. And in fact, when you read Dracula's Guest, which is supposedly this this sort of text that was found after his death in a drawer, which I'm sure that that's the case. And it's kind of a prequel. But 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 had he was that the original version of Dracula? That's the question a lot of us sort of wrangle with over the years. What's mm -hmm. interesting is it's set in Styria, which is a lot closer on the map than Transylvania. And the thinking is that possibly Dracula's guest is the, this kind of it, the original sort of text there. That, that was his original idea, and it's very close. It's got so many themes, but close to Sheridan Lefano, 
that maybe when Bram submitted that to his publishers, he said the publishers said, "No, I'm, that's too similar to the final. You've got to re- rewrite it, recreate it, they, mm. but really put your stamp on it." And so Bram then throws the story to the farthest side of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the bit that hangs over the corner of most maps, actually. Uh, and, and, and there are the Carpathian Mountains and Transylvania and the Borgo Pass. And so, yes, you're quite right. Sheridan Lefano was quite an influence on Bram Stoker. Yeah, I, I'd always heard, and I guess I'm, I'm wrong about this, but I'd always heard that Dracula's Guest was actually the first, supposed to be the first chapter of Dracula, and, and it was just excised because of the length of the novel. Is there any truth to that? It, there are, these are all possibilities, and I don't think we will ever know the truth of it. Was this the original start of the book, an, an original version of the book? But you can certainly see that it's, with the original text for Dracula's guest, it's Styria, then it's changed to Transylvania later. So, uh, well, I don't think we'll never know for sure. And I think anybody that tries to be hard and fast about any of those theories surrounding this text that was found after Bram's death would really have to produce correspondence. Now, Bram was great. He wrote so much to his friend Hall Kane. And there's quite a lot of the, the letters between the two. There's a very good run in the Hall Kane archive, but that you can see that there's gaps. Private collectors haven't. M- maybe that mystery will be revealed one day. I would put money in a letter to Hall Kane turning up somewhere along the line. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what's really interesting when this new fangled invention called moving pictures came along it didn't take too long to jump on the vampire bandwagon and a lot of people think Nosferatu was the first vampire film but it actually wasn't uh there's some lost films supposedly that were vampire films but the first one that apparently really drew on Stoker's novel illegally so was this classic legendary film Nosferatu. Now, Bruce, this film was supposed to have been destroyed by law. Yeah. Yet it survives. And what, as a horror film historian, what importance do you put on a film like Nosferatu for the entire genre of horror cinema? Uh, it couldn't be more important. Um, actually, this is the 100th anniversary of Nosferatu this year. It was made in 1922. And uh, yes, it was supposed to have been destroyed because, and I never understood why Murnau didn't bother to get the rights to the novel, but he didn't. Um, he did the same thing with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, a couple of years before that when he did Janice Faced, <laughs> which I don't know. I don't understand his lack of professionalism there but in any case um uh florence stoker who was bram stoker's widow noticed the keen similarity (laughs) and she demanded that all uh copies be destroyed thankfully thank god for film pirates because uh, they weren't all destroyed 
And uh, the ones that survived, uh, you know, they had to kind of piece them together over the years. Some were incomplete, some uh, some were not in very good shape. But uh, but now, you know, the great thing about uh, uh, video now and Blu-ray and DVD is that you can you can watch a pristine copy of Nosferatu, which is something I didn't have when I was growing up. And uh, it's it's just a, it's a masterpiece of of its kind. Uh, there's no question about it. I love that movie. Yeah, in 1922. You know, obviously silent, black and white, which turns off a lot of people, you know, under the age of 30 won't watch anything black and white or silent. But to this day, it is still one of the most frightening visual films to watch. Yeah. Yeah, tremendous atmosphere. Uh, The makeup on Max Shrek is really creepy and iconic. And, uh, yeah, you really, you know, for, for an early film of that, of that type, it really is a masterpiece. And, uh, I like the remake that, uh, Herzog did. And I understand Robert Eggers is planning yet another remake to celebrate the anniversary, but I don't think anybody's going to top the original and certainly not in its influence. That's for sure. And, and you look at the ending of the film, that's the first time. In, in any of the lower, including Bram Stoker, that a vampire is destroyed by sunlight. He's actually destroyed in a sense by the love of a woman, but it's also the sun coming through the window that disintegrates him. So that's a trope that's been used about a hundred times since, if not more. Well, that's, <laughs> that's magical. The, the power of film to change folklore. My yeah. my favorite example is, is another of the famous horror franchises, The Wolfman. Everything mm-hmm. modern people know about wolf people, The Wolfman, the silver bullets, the crucifix, the, um, you know, if a man is pure of heart and says his prayers, but that all comes from the movie. Well, the whole thing about the full moon comes from the movie. I mean, in, in folklore, werewolves had nothing to do with the full moon. You just change into a wolf when you wanted to or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Hollywood and, uh, and Germany <laughs> have had a great influence on uh, pop culture, that's for sure. But we must not forget that Bram himself drew on the book by Sabine Baring Gould called werewolves that's right he drew upon some of that folklore in the creation of dracula so what goes around comes around but before we lose the the florence stoker line now lauren you've researched some of that as well hadn't you lawrence uh florence uh sort of suing the company the film company you did some research a while ago um yes it was Florence was very protective of the rights. She didn't like letting them go, not because of anything more complicated than um, her concern was is if she let go of the rights or if she create or if she gave people the you know permission to put on plays or to do films, then everybody would do it, um, and then and then there would be some bad productions, and that's what she wanted to stop. Is she didn't want it to become something so common, really. She wanted to protect, protect it and protect the quality of it. Because, you know, as, as you know, that when plays are put on, that you don't always get 
the full text, the full Shakespearean text, for example, or, you know, you get an interpretation of the text, and that's what she was trying to stop. She, The only thing she wanted out there was what Bram had written and what he put out there. So um, she would not like any of the films. She wouldn't have agreed with any of the films. She was a lot more... Um, a lot, she had a lot more business sense than, say, Conan Doyle's relatives had because they lost the rights very quickly. And with Sherlock Holmes, it's problematic because there's so many different people owning different stories and different rights. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that the legacy of Dracula was something that, from the way that she ran it as a business, from... Bram's estate. It was something that they had discussed between them and something that she was running in a, in a way that was expressed to her directly by Bram. And I think she won, She definitely wanted to preserve his memory. When you when you look at the when they republished or the, published Dracula as a part work in Argosy, um, I think that's nearly twenty five, twenty six. Um, it's a a magazine that published. Uh, the world's great works, you know, lots of great books, but published as part works in the, in the UK. There is an American Argosy, which is not the same thing. And she wrote quite a moving, brief few words about preserving her husband's, and she referred to it as uh, a masterpiece uh, in, in, in the text version of, of the novel of Dracula. Well, it backfired on her, ultimately. I mean, she was very proud. I mean, she she even created um, she even created a Dracula salad that the that the recipe was in a magazine for women. So she's very proud. I, I, I know it was in a fundraising booklet as well for yeah. um, one of the it was the church uh, where he always used to love to go at Cruden Bay, Port Errol. And it was, to, it was it was certainly published in one of the uh, church magazines as well. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 it, apparently you know she went to Florence was present at the the Bella the Bella Lugosi screening for the uni, you know the Universal Dracula, but there's no comment of what she said or if she said anything officially. I don't know any any, any of you have ever heard if well, she that's... commented on. That's what I was going to no. get to, is that that's how it backfired on her. Because the official adaptation that was done by um, Hamilton Dean and John Balderston for the stage production, which is what the Universal film is based on more than the novel, is what has really taken a hold in most people's minds of what Dracula is. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, Bruce, I mean, obviously you could speak to this as the, the, the ultimate authority here, how 31's Dracula with Lugosi, the universal production, completely changed the public's mind of Dracula from the Stoker novel to this Hamilton Dean John Balderston production. Yeah, very true. Um, you know, when Lugosi appeared on, on Broadway uh, as Dracula in 1927, uh, you know, women were swooning and uh, throwing flowers at him and all that sort of thing. That certainly wouldn't have happened if he'd played it like Nosferatu. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, I mean, it, it turned the image of the male vampire into this very sophisticated, suave aristocrat who uh, 
kissed hands as much as he bit necks. Uh, so it was, uh, yes, a, a, a sea change in the, in the portrayal of the vampire. No question. And, and most people today are not really familiar with the novel that much, uh, unfortunately, uh, which is a great novel, in my opinion, probably the greatest horror novel uh, of all time. And uh, they, they take everything they know about Dracula from the movies, pretty much, or, or television or whatever. Which is a shame, because uh, as much as I love the films, I, I'd love to see a real version of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, Coppola's version was kind of close. It was, you know, it had all the incidents, pretty much, but it didn't have the the feel to me, because it made Dracula such a, uh, a sympathetic character that Stoker never intended. Uh, I mean, to Stoker, he was really the epitome of evil. He didn't have a lot of nice qualities <laughs> so uh you know in that respect it wasn't bram stoker's dracula at all in That's some respects yeah in some respects the jess franco version is it's more like the book although it's not a very good film <laughs> well i mean but you got lugosi who just just jumps off the screen yeah and becomes so iconic that i, I always point out to people that you ask any kid what a vampire talks like and looks like, and yep. they'll do a Bela Lugosi impression and describe him, and they've never seen the film or heard of it. And they probably never heard of Bela Lugosi either. But, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, that's very true. It's, it's still true today. I think, you know, it's just gone down through the generations, this uh, sort of Lugosi intonation of Dracula, you know, with uh, Sesame Street, you know, and everything else, it's uh, it's always good evening, you know. I want to buy your neck, even though he never said that. But um, yeah, it's very true. I mean, he had that much of an impression. And uh, you know, I I did read, although I never read about what Florence Stoker's reaction to the first, the original Dracula was. Uh, I do know that H.P. Lovecraft walked out on it. <laughs> He, he just didn't think it was enough like the book, and he didn't like it. Shocking. With I don't Lovecraft. think he actually liked the book very much either. Well, he was a tough critic, and, uh, yeah, he never really, I don't think he loved the book the way a lot of and us. I, I've always loved H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Me too. Shadow of Time, you know, it, his ideas are absolutely crazy and literally fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I love it. Uh, and I, I, and I, it made me a little sad to hear him crit, be a, a bit hard on on, on Bram Stoker and, and the Dracula book. Uh, no, I, I think they they, they complement each other. He's an, another generation, a different uh, generation uh, as, as well, uh, taking horror to a very very different place. Yes, you know, I have to say, birth date is H.P. Lovecraft, August twentieth, uh, which undoubtedly means I'll die broke. <laughs> I think everybody who truly loves their their subject, uh, we will never be rich, but we'll have some wonderful books. Yes, we will. <laughs> and isn't it sad that it was Lugosi that jumped out to the public and not Carlos Villarreal from the Spanish version of Dracula from thirty one? Well, you know, I, I love the Spanish version as well, but I think Carlos is kind of the weak link there. He's just not. He doesn't have that Lugosi panache. Well, that's you know? the thing. I always tell people it is superior film 
in just about every way. And if mm-hmm. you don't think you could do better than Dwight Fry as Renfield, watch the Spanish version. The guy well, is even like better. Fry. I still like Dwight Fry better myself. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a better directed movie. Uh, even more atmosphere, um, more, uh, the, I love the brides, you know, the fact that the brides are feral in that movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, Carlos just doesn't have that. No, he's the one Sunwalker. downside of it. Yeah. Yep. Unfortunately. Here's an interesting film question that I don't know the answer. This, this isn't a trick question, but I know that in Britain there were performances on stage with, with, with Hamilton, Dean, and other actors. In, in America, I think um, Claude Rains had a go uh, as well before um, before Lugosi. And there were probably others in the running. What do you think gave Lugosi the, the edge that made him stand out so much? I think it was a variety of things, um, but uh, I think primarily it was the fact that he was from the part of the world that Dracula was from. He was Hungarian. Yes. He had the accent. Um, he had the continental manner. I, I think people really thought he was Dracula, you know, to some extent. He was he was kind of a man of mystery at the time. Uh, of course, we now know years later that he was more or less a you know, normal human being, I guess. But... Um, yeah, he certainly had that air about him, and uh, I, th- I think that's really why he caught on. He also was there the voice about his performance on. Sir? What did the critics say uh, for Lugosi at the time? Did they did they think he looked different, or or, or was it really the, the people making the films that thought he looked different? Well, to be honest, I think most of the film critics at the time probably hadn't read the novel. Um, so I don't think they necessarily went in with any preconceived notions. Um, but, uh, their reviews were, were pretty good as I recall. Um, I know the New York times gave him and the film a really good review. Um, and of course, you know, it just went on to be a huge blockbuster hit and really kind of kicked off the whole 1930s horror film genre and Frankenstein coming next. So, uh, yeah, that was a very seminal movie. Now, I've done some isn't, research looking up some ironic? of... Oh, I'm sorry. Um, looking up some of Lugosi's reviews on stage as Dracula. It's his sex appeal in the women in the audience that are always brought up. Yep. That's what he brought to the role that I don't think others had before, is that he was a matinee idol. He, he was. was the sex symbol. Women were just so drawn to him. And, and you look at him, he was a very handsome man. Uh, he was dark and foreign, very mysterious. He was a big man. He was a fairly large, imposing man. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just like the perfect storm. They didn't care that they could barely understand him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was part of the of the appeal of the, of the early sound movies, in fact, because he had that accent, and sound was still something of a novelty. And I think a lot of people were kind of struggling to understand what he was saying. And maybe that was part of the reason he was so hypnotic in the role. They were just trying to know what he was saying. But um, it's interesting you talk about the sex appeal because exactly 50 years later, Frank Langella had the same effect on Broadway. 
Absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, later in the film, the film unfortunately wasn't uh, really a big hit at the time. Sure. But I think it's it stood the test of time. I think it's a it's a very good adaptation. It, there are a few things in it that kind of drive me nuts, but but Langella you is followed Frank Langella on Broadway as Dracula. Who followed him? Who uh, followed him? Well, I know Raul Julia was in. That's the one. Yeah, Raul Julia. Yeah, and I think there was something like an East Coast company and a West Coast com- company. And it was our very own UK's Jeremy Brett. Right. Yep. He was playing Dracula with the other company as well. So it's, what a wonderful synergy of Dracula performances were going on in the in the early 70s in, in America. Yeah, I was lucky enough to see Langella on Broadway as Dracula. I've also seen him as Sherlock Holmes and Cyrano de Bergerac, by the way. He's a consummate stage actor. The, Sher- um, the Sherlock Holmes is outstanding. He did the yes. canon. Yeah. of works which i think was benchmark i loved the way that rathbone looked but they were yeah. not the stories really of sherlock holmes right, right. But, but what jeremy brett achieved was that these were the stories beautifully recreated and costumed filmed often in similar similar or the actual locations where they were set absolutely electric yeah. but i, I will fight anybody that says Jeremy Brett isn't the best Sherlock Holmes. I'll fight them. <laughs> I, I kind of like a Canadian actor who played him once. but uh, There uh, have been some absolutely incredible performances of Sherlock Holmes, from Peter Cushing to yeah. Christopher Lee, believe it or not, has played Charlton Heston. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. He did. Oh, it's an incredible mix of... of people who have played you know homes in in hand of the baskervilles yeah well christopher Plummer has also played homes that's yes. the one i'm Great. talking about yeah yeah well peter cushing is my sentimental favorite but i think Plummer is, is terrific and murder by decree um but that i was, was going to say that, yeah uh, sorry i was going to say that i actually saw langella twice on stage as dracula because in 1967 i was just a a scrawny little teenager, but I got to see him in a Berkshire theater production here in uh, Massachusetts uh, of Dracula, and it starred the very young, very unknown Frank Langella, and I think that was his the reason that he ended up getting the role on Broadway ten years later. Uh, they were both great wow. productions, but the Broadway. Can you describe the Broadway set because that was rather special in its own right? Yeah. And listeners may not be familiar with it. Well, everything in the set was in black and white. It was all uh, based on illustrations by Edward Gorey. The whole production was designed by Edward Gorey and uh, really unique. And and most of the costumes were black and white as well. There was very little color in it. Um, Drop of blood here and there, maybe, but that's about it. Uh, So it it was fascinating to watch. And he had Talk about matinee idols. I mean, he had women, you know, women, uh, you know, probably throwing their underwear at him on the stage. So, um, but yeah, it was it was an amazing uh, experience seeing that. Isn't what it was amazing? the music like? Oh, go ahead, Neil. I'm sorry. Sorry. What was the music like? Was it like live orchestra or recorded? Please. You know, I don't remember much about the music. I don't think there was a lot. Um, I think there was some incidental music, and that was about it, and I believe it was on tape. 
because I, I just would, I would have loved to have seen that performance with the Edward Gorey set. Yeah. I, I would have loved to have seen it. I, I don't know whether, was there ever a film, you know, even a brief snatch of it shown on, uh, recorded as, as film? Uh, unfortunately, not that I'm aware of. Um, oh. I did see Langella a couple of years later uh, as Sherlock Holmes on stage. And that was taped, and that was one of the first things ever shown on HBO, I believe. But um, no, I've never seen a tape of any part of Dracula. So you can understand why I wanted to talk to somebody that had actually seen it. Yeah, well. For real, and try to evoke the atmosphere of that black and white stage. Mm. Because it was very, it was sketch-like, wasn't it? It wasn't... Yeah. it wasn't realistic. It wasn't like a sort of black and white film. It looked like a, like sketches. Yes, it was very stylized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Incredible that's what led, I think that's what led to uh, Edward Gorey doing uh, the uh, mystery series on uh, PBS. You know, designing the opening credits for that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, well, it was quite amazing. What's amazing to me is that Frank Langella, with that voice and that presence is from Bayonne, New Jersey. I know, yeah. Where everyone else sounds like every minor character in a bad 30s gangster movie. Yeah. Well, I, I met Frank Langella backstage at Sherlock Holmes, and he, he still talked that way, so he, it's not like he's putting it on. Um, but he, he said that he grew up uh, listening to, you know, like Olivier and actors like that on records and whatever. So I think he just kind of picked up that elegant way of speaking. Odd little side note. A high school friend of his was Chuck Wepner, the Bayonne bleeder who famously fought Muhammad Ali and Rocky is based on. Was a <laughs> well, classmate of Franklin Jealous. You would know that. I wouldn't I wouldn't know that. I've but. talked to Chuck <laughs> Wepner about that. Yeah? He always says, <laughs> it's my Dracula friend. <laughs> okay. But I, a couple things were said in that last segment. One word that Bruce said and one name that Neil said that makes me have to go here. You mm-hmm. said the only color was blood, and Neil <laughs> evoked the name of Christopher Lee. So Dracula <laughs> is reborn where you can actually see blood in the Hammer films, and that changed the Dracula mythos yet again. Yeah, it, it sure did. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, when I was very young, like five years old, they, that's when shock theater came to TV and they showed all the old, old universal classics. So I saw horror of Dracula that same year, <laughs> uh, because, because I was spoiled. And because by the way, for those of you in the UK, we had no restrictions on what kind of movie you could see back then. <laughs> Um, so I went to see the first time of Dracula, which here was called Horror of Dracula. And uh, at the tender age of five, I was almost six, so, you know, give me a little credit here. That's okay, then. But, uh, um, <laughs> it changed my life, let's put it that way. I mean, it, it set the course of my life in a lot of ways, because that mm-hmm. movie haunted me for years. And uh, being at such a tender age, it left such an impression on me that I, I never forgot it. And, uh, you know, a few years later, I, I caught up with uh, Kiss of the Vampire and Brides of Dracula and their other Dracula films. 
And then when uh, the original, when the Horror of Dracula was reissued in 1965, I went to see that again. And uh, I've been pretty much obsessed with that movie and all of Hammer's vampire movies ever since. Now, Neil, you had a um, a run-in with Dracula, didn't you? Oh, well, I, I will tell that story in a short while. And it was, <laughs> it was the most wonderful meeting. But I will... The story I'll tell is, how did I encounter Hammer Films? I, I was born in 1972, so I've always had this affinity with Dracula <coughs> AD 1972. But in Great Britain, we did have restrictions, so I would walk past a cinema on my way to school, and I would see posters in the window, and they would be X certificate, which meant I would be nowhere near aged, you know, five six seven years old no way no way no way no way could i go and see them but i could buy shock theater bubblegum cards <laughs> which i believe were issued also in america you could get three of these cards and they were in full color full technicolor images of dracula AD, from the film dracula lady 1972 um satanic rites of dracula and I think some of the others, but they were the main ones, and they were blood-soaked, they were vivid, they were so terrifying, I had to give them to my mother, and she had to promise to dispose of them in the bin, so I didn't see them outside, <laughs> take them outside, I was so freaked out. But, being exposed to that at such an early age, it did. it left that same indelible impression, also an impression of what are the times I was looking at? Because these look like Victorian characters, a different world, different entities. So when eventually I did uh, pluck up the courage, I was a little older, I think it was in the early 1980s, and they started showing the hammers on British TV. And my first, my mother knew, she'd say, oh, we can stay up and watch it. It was on at 10 o'clock. Oh, so I was able to stay up, but she knew I wouldn't be up for very long. So I was watching round the living room door <laughs> and Dracula AD 72 is this incredible scene. Now on the top, uh, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee fighting on top of a coach and the coach spins off the road and the, and the wheel comes off and Cushing's thrown clear. But what's happened to Dracula? And this moment is etched bold. This is the moment that I knew I would never be the same again. It's the moment when you don't see Dracula's face. You see this shoe come down from the opposite side of the carriage. So you're looking through what's left of it, through underneath. The shoe comes down and you see a glimpse of cape with a blood red silk lining. Oh my God. I looked away, and if they timed it, they timed it perfectly. Because the moment I look back is the moment that you see Dracula with the blooming wheel through his spoke, through his chest. His eyes are crying blood. Yes, I was gone. I was in bed. That's it. Game <laughs> over for that one. But I would never forget it. <laughs> That's right. So is that what your mother used to threaten you with, um, with going to bed? Go to bed or Dracula will get you. No, 
Oh God, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, I was, no, I was, I was all right. No, I, I liked my little world. I, I was okay. Didn't need too much of a threat to go to bed. No, they were good folks, but uh, that she just knew. She just knew I wouldn't be able to sit up all the way through. <laughs> my mother used to threaten me with uh, forcing me to watch reruns of F Troop if I misbehaved. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I would think, you know, going to bed would make Dracula even more of a threat because he usually goes into the bedroom and bites people. So, I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't trust that. <laughs> I like that. Thought very good, very true. But no, I was under the co- I was under the covers. Of course, I'm protected as a child. Throw the covers over your head, nothing's going to get you. <laughs> now, well, I was warped at a young age. I just I very little scared me in the movies. I remember kids running out of the theater at the horror of Dracula. And I was just sitting there going, yes, yes. (laughs) The interesting thing is that I've recently revisited some of the 1970s magazines and, and I bought shock theater cards. I'm a big boy and I can manage that now again. So I'm building up quite a collection of those. And I thought, so I'm doing a little biography of, a new biography of Bram Stoker, and I thought, well, what is, what's the view of children today? I've got a, I've got grandchildren, one's nigh on ten, and friends have got kids. They're about eight, ten, early teens. We check with our friends that can we show them the shock theatre cards? Can we just see what what do the kids reckon to that nowadays? And nowadays, kids, they they're not frightened by Dracula at all. Or at least the ones that we know. It's it's a funny man in an outfit. Yeah. They don't even seem to realise it's kind of Victorian or gothic or anything. They've seen it all on the internet. Everything. Blah, 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 blah. So maybe we children of the 1970s and 80s, we will be the last generation to be scared by creatures on film and television. <laughs> Gosh, I hope that's not true. My niece, who's a teenager now, when she was a little girl, used to play with these dolls called Monster High. And they were Wolfman and Dracula. They were these monster dolls. And they were marketed to little girls of all the classic monsters. Did you have some of those, Lauren? No, I didn't. I was too old for them. But you can... um, they, They... been sort of discontinued now but like if you go to toy shops nostalgia is really high so what they do is you know there's sort of like a variation on the pop figures and you can buy like the core range of monster high dolls you can buy a little statuette of them because i've got frankie stein (laughs) (laughs) um they also do the same with my little they also do the same with my little pony like proper 1980s my little pony so (laughs) i i (laughs) yeah as a film guy i feel bad that we skipped from lugosi to to christopher lee because bruce there were a lot of great actors who portrayed the character of the count or dracula or some variation of that Mm. in between those years um what were some of your favorites well of course the sequels to uh universal's dracula are all pretty interesting i mean dracula's daughter of course takes a little bit from carmilla uh, in the sense that there's a uh, you could call it a lesbian scene it was very underplayed had to be but uh it was there 
and uh, then the Son of Dracula, which is actually one of my favorites of that era. A lot of people kind of dump on the Son of Dracula and say, well, Cheney was miscast and all of that. But I really like that film because it has such an atmosphere. It's almost like a, a film noir vampire movie uh, in the sense that there's some very dark themes in that. The, the heroine, Louise Albritton, wants to become a vampire. That's her desire. You know, that's pretty rare in, in movies of that era. And, uh, you know, the ending is kind of downbeat. It's uh, just a very dark film in a lot of ways. I really like that one. And, then and don't get, forget, if, if we'd never had a long Cheney vampire, everybody would have always wondered what would have long Cheney looked like as a... <laughs> That's very, yeah, that's very true. But also, the thing about Cheney in that role was that he had a little bit of that feral, that ferocity that Christopher Lee would have later. I mean, he had a more physicality to him than, than Lugosi did. Uh, you know, the way he throws the hero around and he snarls. and uh, That kind of was a, a precursor, I think, to the Hammer uh, version. And Carradine was interesting, too, John Carradine in his two yes. things. Um, he was very, very sophisticated and uh, almost Shakespearean in the part, which makes sense because Shakespeare was what Carradine was all about. When he and he went. had the mustache as well. Yeah, he did. He was the first actor to to play Dracula with a mustache. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Turkish Dracula, but that's an interesting version. Has anybody seen that? I, I have seen it. Yeah. What time period is that one, please? Sorry? What time period is the Turkish one? Oh, that's one? from uh, was it made? 1953. Oh, right. No, I don't know that one. So right between the two cycles. Um, yeah, uh, an actor named Atif Kaptan played Dracula on that one. And in a sense, it's quite a bit like Stoker's Dracula um, because he plays it, he sort of looks, he's older and he's, got the snar- snaggly teeth and um you know it, it's it follows the story pretty closely and when they destroy him they have to cut off his head so it's uh Spot you know, on. yeah Spot first first time on. that happened i think and and along the way there were some interesting kind of variations there was uh lugosi and return of the vampire uh, that's a movie i like a lot Love that film. Uh, because, yeah, because it also has a werewolf in it, and it's got a lot of atmosphere. And <laughs> Lugosi's really playing Dracula. They just couldn't use the name because it was Columbia instead of Universal. But uh, And then there's an interesting uh, version of um, you know, Polidori's The Vampire, a very, very loose version called The Vampire's Ghost from 1945 uh, from Republic Pictures, which usually made westerns. And... Uh, that was John Abbott in that role. That was, it's an interesting little sideline to... So did any of them have an American hero with a big knife to take <laughs> off Dracula's head? No, none of them have that. Nope, not one. Isn't that crazy? That's the greatest in for an, an American in this very British adventure Yes. And and you've never had a Quincy in one well, not no. in the early, early versions. That's crazy. Well, and I remember when uh when the BBC Dracula with Louis Jordan was first broadcast. Oh Louis, wonderful. Yeah, that's a great that's one of my all time favorites. And Mine too. Uh, it uh I remember a lot of people saying, 
why is that Texas guy in there? What's he doing in there? That doesn't belong. I said, it's in the book. It's in the novel. See, that's unfortunate that most people don't know that, but there it is. Yeah, I think that's because uh, people's people's image of Dracula changed due to the early films and the early film adaptations where, Mm. you know, even if there's quote-unquote Americans in it, they're not supposed to be Americans, at least we don't think so. Mm. And it's, you know, a foreign and it's this exotic Victorian tale. And to throw an American in it would make audiences go like, what's he doing there? Just like it did, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, also, there's a very interesting Mexican movie called El Vampiro, which came out in 1957, a year before Hammer's Dracula. And that was the first film to show vampires with the typical canine teeth fangs that we associate with them now. So, actually, you know, Hammer's version was borrowing, I think, from from that version, which very few people had seen at the time outside of Mexico. Because London After Midnight, of course, did have long Cheney, but he had shark-like teeth in that one. Right, he? right. But the the classic, uh, you know, canine teeth, elongated yeah, yeah. fangs, that really started with El Vampiro. Yeah. I never. <laughs> yeah, we all think we know, don't we? A lot well, of us think we know these films, and we. But you're absolutely right. You know, if you think Lugosi never had a fang. That's crazy. No, never, never wore fangs. And Frank Langella wouldn't either. Uh, Fifty years later, history repeated itself, um, and he wouldn't wear them in the film. So that's one of the things that bothers me about the Langella movie is that he doesn't have fangs, but all the other vampires do. I just, uh, I don't know. It's frustrating because he was Maybe so he badass. He didn't extra need a powerful him. suck. <laughs> Maybe so. I hadn't thought of that. We've talked about a lot of the Draculas, um, but what I'd be very interested to know is I know your opinions on the next adaptation, on the adaptation I'm going to mention, Neil, so you're excused from commenting, Um, but what did you think, Bruce, about the more recent BBC adaptation of it, of Dracula? (laughs) Well, uh, I wanted to love it. I really wanted to love it. Yeah, I I sort of I, I liked the first episode. I didn't like the second episode as much, and I hated the third episode. So I ended up did, not not going for it. Thumbs did yeah, get, thumbs down. <laughs> did you get all the Doctor, Doctor Who references? Uh, I, you know I'm not the biggest Doctor Who fan, but uh, I, yeah, I got some of those references. Oh, I also was, got, it, got, it, the Sherlock Holmes reference as well, and um, yeah. also in the first episode when they're talking about the barmaid, um, they're talking about Clara, Clara Oswald. Um, I was oh. quite disappointed that they need, they felt they needed to put the Doctor Who references in, because yeah. um, um, that wasn't really needed. Well, I was under um, the impression it was going to be a more serious adaptation, and it really wasn't. It wasn't even an adaptation of the book, really. I thought the stuff about cremation was a bit creepy. Well, some of it, yeah, some of it worked, and some, a lot of it didn't. I mean, I, I really didn't understand why they did the whole thing with the nuns. I mean, it, you know, it was kind of interesting, but it didn't really add up. And they dropped in a lot of little in jokes, which I appreciated in a sense. I mean, there was a, a reference to Dracula eighty nineteen seventy two in there. There was a hospital door with I think it was room seventy two or something. 
Um, but really, I mean, it just, it was a big disappointment. The only, was, I think, go ahead. Sorry, I said, for me, it was too reminiscent of what Gattis and Muffet had been working on in Doctor Who in general, because the bit about the, uh, the, the Jonathan's, um, Harkness Foundation was very much, you know, reminiscent of either Unit or Torchwood, and, mm-hmm. you know, could have been done a lot better. Right. What, what, yeah, what was... Oh, go ahead, please. No, you know, just go ahead. Well, I was going to go on to another film that we've just grossly left off the list. Mm. And I, I'm not going to let you move on yet because now it's my turn. <laughs> exactly. Okay, okay. You're banned, you're, banned. you're banned from speaking. You're banned from speaking. It's Sorry, I'm just going to say missed <laughs> opportunity. That's what I think it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But. But some moments in that film, and that's why I say missed opportunity, and I mean it with respect, showed that you can recapture some of that hammer magic. And that's what made it even more frustrating for me, because the look of it at times was absolutely, for me, spot on. It well, looks amazing. Yeah, there's a good reason for that. It was partly filmed at Bray Studios, which <laughs> I, I think go. I think that's maybe the best thing about it is that uh, partly because of that production, Bray Studios became a studio again. There were there was a time there when it was up for sale. It was going to be turned into I don't know apartments or something or hotel, but they saved it um, because they were using it for that production and a few other things. So Bray is back in business, and I I'm all for it. <laughs> Me too. All right, now there we are. <laughs> now here we go. Now Lauren and Neil might not even be familiar with this one, but Bruce, you're going to be ashamed of yourself that we haven't mentioned this or left it off the list yet. Mm-hmm. The brilliant 1971 Al Adamson version, Dracula <laughs> versus Frankenstein. Oh boy, yeah, brilliant. Yes, it certainly. Uh, I'm sure that the film stock was brilliant. Um, I don't know. But um, the movie itself? Wow. Uh, yes, uh, Sandor Vorkov, I believe was his name, yeah, right? Yes, well, that's what they called him. Yeah, that's what he was called. He was actually, wasn't he a dentist or something? Or, yeah. No, yeah, he was a dentist for, for Forey Ackerman, I believe. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, boy, what a memorable film for all the wrong reasons. Well, it's weird, too, because <laughs> you have, like, J. Carroll Nash in it. You got yep. Lon Chaney Jr. in his bloated, alcoholic, already dying best. Yes. You know. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a piece of work, I'll say that. I think it was made for $20. Something like that, <laughs> yes. And yet it was the first time. I mean, the, some of the Universal films where all the monsters were involved, but this mm-hmm. was the first time you had Dracula versus Frankenstein. And it was literally made to be an exploitation film in run-down Times Square theaters. Yep. That's a missed opportunity, because that's the kind of film that, if you would have made that a few years later in the 70s, could have been great if you had had a budget and real... You know, oh yeah, a little, a bit of a budget, and probably lots of nudity and uh, you know more gore and all that stuff. Yeah, but uh, that's a film I'd I'd rather forget, and I I've tried to, but thanks for reminding me. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. 
There are worse ones than that, though. I mean, Billy the Kid versus Dracula was no prize either, you know? No, but that leads me to my question for you, and this is, like Neil said, you think you know, but you don't. And that's why I like talking to people like, like Neil and like yourself, because you fill in these gaps that, as a nerd, as a film buff, as a, as a loony film historian, <laughs> what changed that made any independent, low-budget studio be able to use the actual name Dracula? Oh, well, that's an easy one. Uh, ran out of copyright. Um, no one renewed it. Right. Uh, I believe the copyright expired around 1965, 66, somewhere in there. Um, it was 50 years after Stoker's death. So that probably would have been about 63, actually. Um, but, yeah, that's after that, the floodgates opened and anybody could make a Dracula movie. And frequently did. And still do. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Uh, of course, Frankenstein was always in public domain as far as movies were concerned because that was written much earlier. But uh, for Dracula, I do remember, the, um, and in fact, you can you can see in my book, The Hammer Vampire, plug, um, that uh, there was a lot of um, copyright uh, problems with uh, Hammer's first version. They had to go through Universal. Universal had the rights to Dracula, both the play and the novel. And so they had to, to go through them to get uh, the rights. And that's why Universal ended up releasing it. So, um, but, you know, a few years later, when they made Dracula Prince of Darkness, they didn't have to worry about that anymore. Now, this is, I, I got to pose this question to both Neil and yourself. Lauren, you can pipe in too, obviously. But I, I think Neil's, we know his sentimental favorite. Of the Hammer Draculas, we're just going to stick with Hammer right now. What is your favorite and why? Neil, you go first because I think you already answered. It, it's it's got to be, for me, because I was born in 72, it's Dracula AD 1972. And I know some people, people say, oh, there's awful bits in it. And, but for me, I see London at a time that I knew when I was a kid. It was the ancient modern Dracula. It's the one that where it all began for me. So it's a very sentimental and personal uh, point of view. But that chase on on top of a carriage by by any stunt in any day uh, that was pretty dramatic, and and I, it just captured. I, I love it. Nothing's ever going to change it. It's Christopher Lee. It's Peter Cushing. What's not to like? <laughs> Good point. You know, when I first saw it, I was a little taken aback by the modern setting because I really wanted my Dracula movies to be gothic and Victorian. Mm -hmm. But over the years, that movie really grew on me. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's very entertaining. I also like the sequel, uh, Satanic Rites, quite a bit. Um, yeah. It's, uh, in fact, in some ways, I think I like it a little bit better because it seems more sure of itself in the in the modern approach. But uh, but they're both fun movies. But what's first, your favorite? First my, well, my favorite, of course, is the first one. Um, I think, you know, Horror of Dracula, or as it's known in Great Britain, Dracula, is as close to perfection, I think, as... as vampire movies get and horror movies get and there's really not a wrong step in that film you know from the 
from the beautiful cinematography to the uh, uh, the music score by James Bernard, which is iconic now, um, and the acting. I mean, it's just a uh, it's just practically perfect as far as I'm concerned. Although I will I will say that um, on uh, it, depending on the day. <laughs> Um, Brides of Dracula is also my favorite. There's something about that movie, uh, the atmosphere, the uh, you know the the kind of twisted nature of the story that I really love. Um, I think Brides is actually probably Hammer's greatest gothic fairy tale, whereas uh, you know the first Dracula is more of a perfect horror film. That's where I think we see some of the most iconic images. Of Peter Cushing in Brides, don't we? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's he's the one where he's kneeling by the case with the cross in his hand that everybody knows. But actually, that's Brides. It's not. Yeah. The standards. That's, that's but, right. And that's the one where he, uh, you know, burns the vampire's mark off his throat with a poker. And, that's uh, so iconic. That's yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. So those who are my absolute favorites. Yeah. What's What's shocking to me is they were. Wildly successful on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And then they just faded away. Well, it took a while. <laughs> well, yeah, but when they did, other than, you know, the, the really low-budget exploitation films, Dracula kind of had a lull, except in, you know, some comedy, some spoofs. The character would come around on Halloween. And really, it wasn't big again until what you referenced earlier, the Coppola one, which I remember being so excited to see when it was announced. Yeah. But it, it kind of, that one left me, uh, and I love Gary Oldman. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I loved uh, most of the casting. I, I even liked Keanu Reeves in it, which people always want to bash his performance, but I thought he was actually really good for what he was doing. Well, I like that film a lot. I think it's got a lot of flaws, but uh, visually and musically, I mean, the music is terrific, Um, but it's a visual feast for sure. But it's interesting what you were saying about Dracula went away a while because the 70s, I think, were probably the the peak years for vampire movies. I mean, there were dozens, if not hundreds, of vampire movies made during the 70s. And I think a lot of that had to do with the uh, relaxation of censorship, where you could combine, you know, sex and horror and that sort of thing. <clears throat> so, you know, by 1979, you had three high-profile Dracula movies. You had uh, Love at First Bite, uh, Nosferatu from uh, Herzog, and uh, the Frank Langella version. But then after that, it just seemed like, you know, in, this, uh, in the 80s, there were basically almost no Dracula films. But that's, I think, because the uh, the trend at the time was towards slasher movies. And, uh, you know, they were very simple and easy, cheap to make. And uh, there were, you know, scores of them. Um, so vampires were kind of out until about, I would say, 1985 when they started to come back with Fright Night. And uh, I was going to go there. Ooh, thank you. That, that was a really sleeper, uh, really a sleeper hit. I mean, that... Uh, you know, Columbia released that with not much fanfare, and it really took off. And then a couple of years later, you had The Lost Boys, and then you had, uh, you know, quite a few uh, sort of indie uh, exploitative vampire films coming out. 
And then finally, 1992, there's Dracula again from uh, Coppola. So Bruce remembers the kind of birth of the Hammer genre with Dracula. Funnily enough, I, I was there at the end. Right, but that's Lauren right. can speak from her own experience here because she's a lady of that time in between. Mm-hmm. So, Lauren, how how did you encounter Dracula? Buffy, <laughs> love it. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm holding myself uh, well, on Giles. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not the not the um, TV series, the film. That's uh, my first encounter was Buffy. Um, and, um, then Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV series was when I was in the teenager, uh, in my teenager and you could buy the novelizations and, um, the bookshop, um, in Swansea had, um, all the Buffy novelizations, um, next to Dracula. And I think one of the books, the first books I bought when I started doing a paper round, was Dracula and Harry Potter. What a mix. And then that's how I got into that. And then when I went to university, I did film and English literature. And um, we we had the honour, I say it's an honour, of seeing Dracula, Prince of da- Darkness on celluloid. So that was amazing. That's my favourite one. Is that your favourite one? Is that your sort of baptism of celluloid? Favorite. Yeah, that that is my favourite one. Um, because I just think it's an amazing performance from Christopher Lee um, that he says absolutely nothing. He doesn't speak one word at all. All you get is his performance. And he was in his contract. He actually said he didn't want to say a word because he was a bit annoyed that he had to do Dracula, Prince of Darkness, because I think he was filming Rasputin, the Mad Monk at the same time. And he didn't want to do Dracula, Prince of Darkness, but they were like, just do it. So he's like, I'll do it if I don't say anything. And he never did say it. Actually, Lauren, I, I have to uh, interject here. He he said a lot of things that <laughs> about uh, his various Dracula films that I think he kind of made up because he was <laughs> a uh, he was a bit of a uh, a raconteur, shall we say? Um, my understanding, because I, I knew Jimmy Sangster, and Jimmy Sangster actually wrote Dracula: Prince of Darkness under a different name. He called himself John Sansom, and Sangster said that uh, he never wrote any dialogue for Dracula in that film. Uh, Christopher Lee was going around for years saying, I wasn't going to say that dialogue. It was it was lousy. Um, he never wrote any, actually. So, um, you know, well, that's, that's, that's the story. Where the, that's where it, came, it was actually in the lecture, because um, the way they used to work is you'd have the lecture, then the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that actually came from the lecturer that gave oh, okay. the lecture. He said well, that yeah. it was because Dra- he wasn't. He didn't want to do particularly want to take up Dracula again. So you got to so go back and tell him he was wrong. Don't say anything. Yeah, he d- he, <laughs> definitely, he definitely had a problem with continuing playing Dracula. I, I don't think he was that much opposed to it in that film, but in every film afterwards, he you know they had to really come up with all kinds of ways to seduce him into making the movie Um, because he didn't like the way Dracula was being portrayed he didn't like the fact that he didn't have much dialogue actually and that he didn't um, you know adhere to the books necessarily at that point Um, so I don't know Christopher Lee's thing wasn't it that he really wanted to have a loyal uh, portrayal of, of, of the book on film 
I know yes. that. that that was Christopher Lee with any book that he was associated with of an author that because Christopher Christopher Lee was very well connected um, and I know that when he did in the um, late 1990s early 2000s when they um, adapted Gormenghast for the BBC and um, he's on screen uh, in the making of documentary and he's saying that it was important to him that he had the assurances that it would be a faithful adaptation because he he knew Mervyn Peake and he used to meet Mervyn Peake in the uh, lending library in Harrods so and have a cup of tea with him so it was important to him you know because of that friendship that the, that um, Gormenghast was um, faithful and it is a really good adaptation he plays Mr Flay if anybody knows Gormenghast yeah, apparently it was the same way on Lord of the Rings. And, uh, he yes, drove, he was. He drove Peter Jackson crazy, from what I heard. <laughs> yes, because um, Peter Jackson was like to hit, went to him once, oh, um, you need to imagine like you've been stabbed in the back. And he was, I don't need to imagine. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and there he goes again with another story. But, uh, you know. When he was made Sir Christopher Lee, he rang up the Houses of Parliament and demanded that they bring back capital punishment. Really? And he kept ringing them up to such an extent that they let they they sort of fobbed him off by letting him go around the Black Museum. So that's how Christopher Lee got into the Black Museum. I, I think that's one of the reasons why he usually played the bad guy and Cushing was the good <laughs> guy, you know. <laughs> Just had that well, darkness in him. You know? I'd oh, like to share... Sorry, Lauren, come on. Oh, no, I was going to say, because there was... Um, a Stephen Fry anecdote that he says on, on QI once um, where he's saying that he was working with Peter Cushing on something and the next project that Stephen Fry had was with Christopher Lee and um, they were there together and then Peter Cushing was like, oh yes, yes, let me just, let me just ring him up, let me just ring him up <laughs> um, and, and, and Peter Cushing was trying to be nice and introduce him and then Christopher Lee was having none of it. Yeah. <laughs> you can well, help. Christopher Lee, I encountered him once in oh. my lifetime. I was only in my teenage years, but I'd st- started watching the, the, the proper Hammer Horrors. Hooray! They're on, they're on TV. I think they were even doing them on, on VHS anyway. I'd, I got the chance to see them. And I'm. I always loved gothic horror and ghosts and legends, but Dracula was the one. I've also collected military 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 badges and buttons insignia for years, and I was at the Bedford Arms Fair in England, and I was looking through a bunch of badges. I could take you to the very spot in the building. I know the storeholder, and I remember just looking look at this packet that. Rod Flood had actually put it on the table and this hand came down from almost heavenly like hand over my shoulder. That's mm. rather a good one, boomed his voice, and I bloody knew what it was. I knew that voice and I looked over my young shoulder and Christ it's a <laughs> prince of bleeding darkness. <laughs> my god, it was Christopher Lee. Now he he was he had his moustache at that time. He was dressed in a tweed jacket. Very relaxed, roll-neck sweater, you know, but always immaculate. And he had the smile. And he saw the look in my eye, and he could tell. He, he had that, 
<laughs> that the uh, it was he knew he knew the result he was going to get because I dare say it happened with youngsters quite a bit. But he, but there was also this the face changed to one of great kindness, and he and he started to talk to me about the badges that I was looking at and the insignia only briefly. <laughs> but I and I thought, well, yes, if that's rather a good one, w- would you like that one, Mr. Lee? No, no, it's a very good badge, though. So I, that's the one I bought, and I still have it. But just that little moment, I saw the humanity, I saw the dark side, I saw uh, the humour in the man, and and I did like to shake his hand. I I, I was absolutely stunned. I I couldn't really talk. I didn't know what to say because it was Dracula <laughs> just turning over my shoulder. <laughs> Uh, he was tall. He was impressive. His eyes were absolutely hypnotic, but there was also mischief and kindness in there as well. And I just thought, this is a man I've admired his performance on film. And I was, I was probably for one of the very few times in my life, I was absolutely awestruck. Hmm. Understandable. You bet. Well, Caroline Monroe, who I know, and I used to know Veronica Carlson as well, um, both said that when he was Dracula on film, when when they were working with him, he was Dracula. I mean, they they were petrified. (laughs) They didn't really have to do much acting because he was really incredibly uh, powerful in that part. That's what they say about Lugosi, too, that when he played the role, he put himself into it, and he would walk around the set claiming he was Dracula. Yep, that's right. Oh, yeah. Understanding. Yeah. Now, we also, you brought up the Mexican El Vampiro. Hmm. What did, what, would, what did you think, and I loved it, this is one of my earliest introductions to Dracula, was through the fantastic black exploitation film, Blackula. Didn't oh, like yeah. the sequel so much, but the original Blackula, what did you think? Oh, it's a fun movie. I mean, it's, you know, obviously we're not talking high art here, but it's uh, very enjoyable. And Great very performance. Yeah, you know, William Marshall was a terrific actor. I mean, he was a Shakespearean, and uh, he, uh, yeah, he, very commanding performance there. He is one yeah, of the but, more frightening Draculas on screen. Well, yeah, I would say so, because... Uh, he, he didn't take any prisoners, let's put it that way. No. <laughs> There's quite yeah. a lot of facial hair involved there as well that I thought was inappropriate. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I remember that, yeah. He almost seemed like a werewolf at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he was so good. I thought good. he a chance to, mm. to portray it without the stupid facial hair. Uh, uh, I, and I think he could have looked a lot better without that, seriously. I, I, really, I tend to agree, yeah. I think they were just trying to go a little over the top because Dracula had been done so many times. And, and it was the 70s, and they were trying all these new ways of showing vampires. Yeah, oh, you he don't was really, so good. You don't really want him looking like Shaft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it was. I mean, oh, no. <laughs> you know, the, the black exploitation market, which, you know, people laugh at now and it gets a bad rap, but. You know, for a few years, they were making some really groundbreaking films. Yeah, and by the way, never use the word shaft around a vampire. you got to be careful That's with that. That's true. I, 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 I don't I'll, know. I'll, I'll, I, I think... I'll stake my reputation on that. 
<laughs> I, I think I think if you were to mention that <laughs> word around a, a certain Mr. Laszlo Cravensworth, <laughs> you would get a very different reaction. Ah, uh, yes. Now that's from what we do in the shadows, isn't yes. it? Yes. I was going to ask uh, Bruce about that. Um, what did you th- did you see the 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 movie and then the series? What we do in the shadows? Oh, absolutely! I'm a big fan. So is my wife, who's sitting right here. She loves that show. And I did not think I would like that when I heard what it was. I was kind of insulted by the concept, and then I watched it, and I fell in love with it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's a, a lot of fun. Um, of course, it makes fun of the vampire myth, but, you know, it's a spoof. I mean, you have to have a sense of humor about these things, right? Well, sometimes I mean, it misses, like Dracula dead and loving it. Um, I actually, I kind of like that film. Um, I don't think it's one of, uh, Mel Brooks's best movies, but the the thing I always like about the Mel Brooks parodies is that it, he does the parodies with an obvious love for the subject matter. Uh, like Young Frankenstein, you could tell he really loved those movies. Well, that was, the, I think was that was the thing. Young Frankenstein was such a beautiful, loving, moving tribute, and yet hysterically funny. Dracula Dead and Loving It looked like it was just trying too hard to go for the toilet humor. Well, in spots. Uh, but there were there were some some parts that I really got a kick out of. There were some scenes that were uh, so much like the Hammer Dracula movies, uh, especially the scenes involving um, the Lucy character. Um, I forget the actress's name right now, but um, she, you know, <laughs> is very buxom. And, uh, you know, she comes up to Jonathan Harker and she's going to bite him. And, uh, uh, he says, no, no, you can't do that. I'm, I'm British, you know. And, and she grabs her boobs and says, so are these. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's stupid, but you know, he was obviously taken off on the hammer stuff there. And, uh, a lot of it's, you know, pretty close to the universal version, um, so obviously he loved the movies. It's not as good as Young Frankenstein by a long shot, but I think it's got some good moments. And uh, you know, the ending kind of left me cold, but most of the rest of it I thought was pretty amusing. So I'll try to wrap this up pretty soon. But I, first, I want to know if you guys, if well, not you, Lauren, because you're always with me. But if you two will join me again sometime, because the two of you together is 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 magical. Well, absolutely. I will, if you will, Neil. Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, as we said, the wrestling ring has a table in the centre. Uh, the, the red <laughs> wine is at a very appropriate temperature. The yeah. food of knowledge and sharing is wonderful with you. Thank <laughs> so you, Bruce. I will Thank ask you. one more question to the group, and we'll go around, and then we'll call it a show for now. And that is, you can't say Lugosi. And you can't say Christopher Lee. Other than those two big ones, who was your favorite Dracula or Dracula-type character and why? And Lauren, you get to go first. Oh, crikey. Um, I don't know. Can I say Can I say a vampire that isn't, isn't Dracula? Yeah, Dracula-type okay. character. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. It, it has to be a toss-up between Angel from Buffy and Laszlo from What We Do in the Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad choices. <laughs> Neil, your turn. I've got to go with Louis Jordan. Uh, he... I'm such a huge fan of Christopher Lee. No one will ever take his place, but I think Jordan brought something special to uh, a, a television adaptation that, that I've never seen elsewhere. In Bruce, here it comes. Pressure's on. Well, well once again, I concur with Neil. Uh, I, Louis Jordan, I thought it was, uh, it, it's an amazing production. It's probably in, in many ways, the most faithful version of the story um and jordan is great in it um he has a kind of a gallic charm that the other draculas don't really have um and it's it's you know just an all-around fabulous production well you're all wrong because the correct answer is the count from <laughs> sesame street oh, oh yeah he is pretty course, good yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah. I, I think i i did forget to add and i just felt really guilty and uh, but i have to say i also like Nadia from what we do in the shadows. I see a lot of myself in her. And I think if I was ever a vampire, that would be me. And I would be being held back for being murderous. My honest answer. Um, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on this one, but it harkens back to something you talked about earlier, Bruce. And it was, I love Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance Mm -hmm. because he brought to that character, not only the physicalness and the size, but there was a pathos he brought to the character that hadn't really been shown before. That, mm. you know, he drew that from his Wolfman, you know, obviously too, but the pathos and the sadness that Cheney Jr. brought to the character I thought was just magnificent. And I don't think they came close to anybody came close to doing it as well until Christopher Lee in Satanic Rites of Dracula. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, that hadn't really occurred to me, but yeah, I think you're onto something there. Yeah, I think he's very underrated in that role. Definitely. Oh, guys, I want you all listening to this show to go online right now. Go to Amazon and search Bruce Hollenbeck and search Neil's story and buy all of their books. <laughs> And I would say buy all the DVDs that Bruce does commentary on, but you will go broke if you do that. Because <laughs> didn't you just do a bunch more? I did three more recently, yes. And three all worth listening to, by the way. So I some, sincerely uh, hope that one day we will not be just sitting all, all around the Atlantic. I hope one day maybe we will all gather around a wonderful table in Whitby or London or yes. Hooden Bay. Uh, and we will at the Kilmarnock Arms, and we will be where Bram knew and loved. We will dine, and we will talk again. Extra garlic. Wonderful. All yeah. four of us. And I, I did sort of say a special hello to Chicksand Street, as I went past there um, on yeah. Sunday evening. And so you should. <laughs> well, Bruce, and, it was so great to talk to you again, and Neil, you as well. You know, my brother, I always love talking to you, and I'm so glad the two of you got to, to talk to each other because I knew you two would hit it off. But uh, I think you. we, we, we got to wrap this up because I've lied to everybody again and said we'll be on an hour, and here we are going on an hour and a half. So, mm-hmm. 
from Brian in Buffalo. And Lauren in Swansea. Good night. Good night. Good night. Um, but my talk is on syphilis. <laughs>